You're listening to Canadian IP Voices, a podcast where we talk intellectual property with a range of professionals and stakeholders across Canada and abroad. Whether you are an entrepreneur, artist, inventor, or just curious, you will learn about some of the real problems and get real solutions for how trademarks, patents, copyrights, industrial designs, and trade secrets work in real life. I'm Lisa Deschardins, and I'm your host. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Canadian Intellectual Property Office. If you're working for a small to medium enterprise, chances are that you've already requested or received money from the government. In fact, in 2020, more than three quarters of Canada's small to medium enterprises requested government financing, of which 98% was approved. Much of this was resulting from the impact the pandemic had, but nevertheless, the government is often involved in transactions as a buyer of solutions, specifically designed according to specifications, or it can be a sponsor and give funds to small to medium enterprises in forms of grants and contributions for innovation, research and development, or scale-up and so on. But is there a catch in the fine print that says that the government will own the intellectual property? To find out more, we meet with Grant Lines, an IP lawyer with years of practicing multinational firms in the private sector and in some of Canada's largest IP law firms. Grant is now working as a senior advisor on IP matters in the government. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Lisa. Thanks for the invitation to join you. I think we're about to have a very important conversation because the government obviously is heavily involved in some of the management and funding of innovation. But before we go ahead and talk about IP in this context, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to work for the government. Uh, I guess it was interesting uh, seeing the uh, crown aspect of uh, intellectual property. I'd worked in intellectual property, and before law school, I worked in uh, in engineering. But the focus of my career was on intellectual property, mostly patent litigation and private practice, and also when I was in-house litigation counsel at Nortel. And at this stage of my career, after working for uh, for a couple of decades, uh, I knew some folks on the uh, government side that were building the intellectual property center of expertise and kept in touch with them. And uh, through some discussions with these friends and former colleagues, I guess it looked like an interesting opportunity to help build that group within within the federal government and join them. And uh, really uh, a chance to, like I say, grow that group internally and uh, experience IP from the other side, if you will. So tell us a little bit more about the IP centers of expertise. How does that group function? Yeah, okay. Well, I can probably take it in two aspects. The IP center of expertise like I said, was just getting started in the last couple of years, built out from the national IP strategy. And the goal was to build this group of of experienced IP individuals that had worked in IP in various settings, both in private practice, in law firm settings, in corporate settings, and have that as a resource for the federal government. So it's internal to federal government. And the group really focuses on providing IP advice to people within the federal government that encounter IP issues and also to provide training. So there are a number of educational, mostly online courses that have been developed by the IP Center of Expertise to supplement and complement that IP advisory role and provide formal education on IP for federal government employees that deal with IP issues. And that's really uh, kind of the core aspect of uh, the, the group's focus. It's within Innovation Canada, within ICED, Innovation Science and Economic Development. And as far as my role individually, as a member of that group, 
I really focus on the the advisory side and try to provide IP advice to those individuals within the federal government that deal with IP issues, both internally and externally. And I get involved heavily when funding agreements between the Crown and companies that are applying to government programs are negotiating and, and uh, reducing the IP obligations to the uh, the agreement, usually in a contribution uh, agreement. So it's uh, really dealing with the IP issues as we negotiate and counter, overcome them to try and make sure we hit the right balance regarding obligations between the Crown as far as funding the programs and funding the companies and the companies that are that are being funded and accepting the obligations, including the IP obligations. It's an interesting and a very important role from the outside then for companies that are interested in applying for and maybe obtaining funding. How are the IP considerations addressed in those programs? Yeah, so I guess it's it really depends on the program. So there are a number of programs within the federal government, different organizations that will provide funds to companies, and uh, they have different directions and obligations, often set top-down, could be set, those requirements regarding IP could be set for the program um, by virtue of uh, cabinet or treasury board requirements. So there are some obligations that uh, are really are mandatory, I'll say, and set and uh, no deviation permitted. There are other obligations where the programs perhaps have some ad- uh, room to adapt and be flexible to the companies, the way they operate and transact and deal with their intellectual property. So I think when companies are applying to the programs, they really have to look at the program-specific requirements regarding IP and understand them. And the programs, when they're looking at the company's application, they'll look at IP through the kind of the whole the whole cycle from when the companies are being considered for the program against the program criteria, are they applying for the program? So they'll look at the IP requirements and the way the companies have applied for the program and describe their IP and how they transact and deal with their IP. So there's a whole due diligence kind of risk assessment that the the program, the government program people will look at and understanding the IP requirements of the program and compare it to the way the companies are applying to the program. And if a company is moving ahead through that application procedure and is going to be successful, then that will ultimately get into what I touched on earlier, the negotiation between the Crown and the government regarding the IP obligations, and then reducing those to the agreement, and then the obligations regarding reporting. So the government programs will, will typically require reporting back to the program as a project is engaged and, and performed to understand with respect to the IP, what's happening in the program, what's happening by the companies. You know, are they licensing? Are they building an IP portfolio? Are they filing patent or trademark applications? So there'll be a reporting obligation. So the Crown will get some information, data back as the program evolves on these success points and metrics regarding intellectual property. So you're mentioning due diligence and reporting and and a lot of Obviously, very important aspects. But honestly, if I was a company and I would hear this, it would give me cold shivers. And I would really wonder, why is the government looking into IP? Is this really the business of the government? I mean, why are you doing this? So the way I try to explain it in in understandable terms, and it makes sense to me, it hopefully makes sense to the recipients is the government or the crown has really recognized, and I think this is good, they have recognized over the more recent years that intellectual property is and can be and should be a valuable asset 
And the way I explain it to companies is that if I'm using taxpayer funds, and as a result of the taxpayer funds being invested in government programs to companies, there's a recognition that intellectual property will be a valuable asset that's developed and created in part through that funding process. So my view is the government has this interest because we want to be good steward to make sure that that intellectual property asset that is developed with taxpayer funding is taken care of, exploited, commercialized to the benefit of Canada and Canadians. So I want to be able to explain to my next door neighbor, the taxpayer, how his or her investment in a government program through funding a company is going to be a benefit to the country and Canadians. And intellectual property is one of the assets that I see it as my job to ensure that we are being that good steward of ensuring the asset is protected, exploited, commercialized to the benefit of the country. I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, decades ago, years ago, perhaps there wasn't that recognition, but I think it is very much front and center that there is that recognition. And and I see it as a responsibility to make sure that we, on behalf of the taxpayers, are being those good stewards with respect to that IP asset. Okay, that makes sense. But on the other hand, there's so many components of IP. So when the funding program asks for an applicant's IP, what do you expect? Is there some kind of strategy that I should have? Or what do you expect to know then about my IP? Yeah, so each program will have different requirements, like I said, regarding when companies are applying for funding through a program, what are the requirements with respect to IP? And often, generally, most programs will look at the IP usually in kind of two pools, the background IP and the project IP. And one thing you touched on was the strategy, and we'll probably talk about background and project IP in the next little discussion. But if we're talking about an IP strategy, that's a phrase that comes up frequently. There may well be some confusion or a desire to understand what does that mean if if the companies are to discuss an IP strategy, what is expected? I would say generally, the Crown wants to see that the companies who are applying for programs and, and the successful ones that will be funded through programs, think about IP in a strategic way. And what does that mean? I think that means understanding how intellectual property regime applies to the company and its project that is going to be funded, that they're applying to receive funds. An IP strategy that we would expect to be uh, in place is an understanding of the company to say, I understand in my business and in this project how the, the activities may be ripe for protection through patents, designs, copyright, trade secrets, some form of IP protection understanding applicable to the project. That's what we want to see as far as an IP strategy. We want to have some thinking at the outset how that IP will be protected, how it will be commercialized. For example, uh, would the companies expect that they are going to use their IP themselves and exclude competitors from practicing their IP? Or is their business model for the project anticipated to be one where they anticipate licensing in this country or other countries? Is that part of their IP strategy to license their IP to third parties as part of their business model to generate revenue? Have they thought about how they're going to deal with potential enforcement issues? Kind of the full gamut from start to finish, we want the applicants to show us if we're talking an IP strategy, an understanding that they have the awareness, education, and knowledge to be aware of IP, how the IP regime applies to their product or project, and uh, what steps they anticipate taking 
to really build on IP awareness and education within their company and make sure that they're aware of, of promoting that IP awareness all the time throughout their project to fully get the benefits out of IP protection and commercialization as, like I say, to make sure that that, that asset is being used to the benefit, not just of the company, but also we see the benefit to the country. So we have IP sense of expertise established to make sure that the programs have support and that the government can be good stewards that when we allocate money for development. We know now that that's why this program exists and why we're looking to these things. But if we look at it from a practical sense, what kind of clauses can a business expect to see in the kind of agreement when they seek federal funding? The agreements are long. They can be complex because they address so many issues. Many non-IP issues, for example, the number of employees that the, the company may employ over a certain period of time. But if we stick to the IP, usually the IP clauses will focus on kind of the two areas, the background IP, what IP is necessary to perform the project. And usually we're looking for confirmation from the company that they have access to that intellectual property, either through ownership or licensing to practice any IP that is going to be necessary for them to actually perform the project activities as specified. So we want to make, get that understanding, confirmation that they can perform the project that they're applying for funding to perform. And then the next item would probably be looking ahead. The project IP are often, you know, sometimes called foreground IP. Um, it's going to be defined in the agreement, but generally the focus is on the new IP that will be generated, created, developed by the company through its activities that it's being funded through the crown funds. So when we're talking about the project IP, usually there's a lot of discussion and obligations depending on the program around who's going to own the project IP and the licensing of the project IP. And those are the two areas that may be project specific requirements. So there may be very little, if any room to move if one enters a negotiation. Other areas regarding IP, perhaps on reporting or the IP strategy, that's just as an example, or on certain licensing areas, there may be room for flexibility and adaptability. And I think this is what one area that, that I would like to think that the IP Center of Expertise, our group, really brings some, hopefully, some benefit to the, the federal government project program officers who are dealing with various programs. I always like to say is we want to bring the commercial reality to bear on our side of the agreement. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand and ensuring we do understand the project, the business model, the recipient, its requirements to make sure it is uh, agile and, and conduct its business. We want to approach the agreement in a commercially reasonable manner. So the clauses often focus on the needs of the company to conduct its business and on our side to make sure that we understand the business and are being good stewards of that intellectual property asset. And then we'll try and get to an endpoint regarding IP ownership, the project IP ownership and licensing that tries to hit the right balance point for all the parties to the agreement. That's where generally we spend a lot of our time regarding intellectual property clauses in these types of agreements. And then there's also, like I say, the reporting obligations that continue thereafter. And that's something to give us data on the success and some objective data, perhaps, on the success of the program as it continues from an IP perspective. So I guess around the table, then, you would have people from the government, you would have somebody from the company, and possibly somebody from the private industry as well, who's helping them understand IP. 
You're painting a pretty good picture of some of the support, actually, that's available to all of these players. I was wondering if you could give me the rundown of what kind of supports are available to um, anyone then if they don't know a lot about IP. There are a lot of groups making great efforts in, in improving that awareness, education and, and realization of the benefits of protecting IP, commercializing IP and enforcing IP, not just in Canada, but abroad, because intellectual property is international. Companies are international. You've got to look at your rights in all your jurisdictions of interest. There is a lot of uh, work being done to improve that understanding and awareness. I'd say from the uh, the federal perspective, as you know, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, CEPO, um, there's a huge educational component to CEPO that they offer to the public. And there are courses, free courses offered online it's, uh, through CEPO, product resources, information, all kinds of information regarding intellectual property. They also have, um, you know, personal contact with individual IP advisors available uh, to counsel, assist, and educate businesses regarding intellectual property uh, protection. With respect to the private sector, and there's collaborations between the private sector and CEPO and ICED, the, the federal government, generally, there are excellent resources in the private sector. We've discussed uh, many in, in previous discussions. Just three I could I could itemize would be Intellectual Property Institute of Canada, IPIC. It's an association of IP practitioners in Canada from all different facets, from law firms, from patent and trademark agencies, academia, from corporations. This is a, a professional association of IP professionals, and you can search their members at IPIC's website. There's a, a contact IPIC to help you out if there's certain IP professionals in a geographic location or a certain field of, of intellectual property you're interested in, they actually have a search feature on their website that's publicly available. All patent and trademark agents in Canada are registered and regulated by uh, an independent regulator. I'm known as CPAT, it's the College of Patent Agents and Trademark Agents, a very new, recent uh, new regulatory body, but they maintain a searchable list of active patent and trademark agents in Canada. If you're looking for somebody to help you with your intellectual property, IP strategy, uh, counsel you on on IP protection. Those are the types of individuals you would contact to get their advice and counsel. And again, many IP lawyers are resident, obviously, in law firms. And if you have a law firm of interest or an office in a geographic location, virtually all the law firms with IP practice have a filter. You can search on IP professionals on the individual firm websites and look for um, people that that uh, you think are appropriate for your background, or at least call them and get some education. One thing about IP professionals, uh, they love to talk about IP, and they're more than willing to to offer some assistance, education, and counseling, because one thing IP professionals hate is seeing companies and startups, entrepreneurs lose IP rights for lack of knowing the IP regime and understanding what rights they may have. So they want to make sure you're protected and understand the regime so you, you're not in that situation of having a lost opportunity. And you've seen that at first hand coming from both the private industry and the government. So I'll mention here that we'll provide a list uh, of links to these uh, resources uh, in the description of this podcast. What is the number one take-home lesson that you'd like to share with innovators across Canada? You have to recognize, and this is my mantra, IP is a valuable asset. So it really is on the, the same stage as any other asset. If you've got physical property, that's an asset. You're going to budget for that, plan for that, take care of, say, an office space or a manufacturing site. That's your physical asset. Give the same attention to your intangible asset, your intellectual pr property. 
You've got to plan for it, treat it as an asset that's to be nurtured, protected, planned for. You put it in your budget, make sure you're addressing it in a strategic way with an IP strategy. So it's not overlooked, not forgotten. It's not an afterthought. It should be right up there with your human resources. That's an asset, your physical assets. That's a tangible asset. And your IP is an extremely valuable, intangible asset. And depending on your business, maybe your most valuable assets. So make sure that you consider IP early, engage in discussions with IP advisors, IP lawyers, counsel, patent trademark agents to make sure you understand the IP regime so you don't lose rights through some inadvertence or just failure to be aware of the IP regime. As an example, you know, if if you're interested in, in patent or design protection, time is not your friend. You don't want to start practicing an invention or telling somebody about an invention, disclosing an invention without understanding, have you got adequate um, protection? Have you protected your know-how trade secrets adequately? And if you're interested in going for patent protection, make sure you don't disclose to anybody because there are certain timelines. Uh, If you disclose, you're on the clock and you may be barred from ever obtaining patent protection if you pass that timeline and didn't realize that you should have filed your patent application before you disclosed. And these are the whoops scenarios that you don't want businesses or entrepreneurs or innovators to experience. You want them to understand the IP regime early. And it's not just on the technical side. If you're interested in marketing, before you launch a potential trademark, make sure you understand the IP regime so you don't walk into a landmine and start getting brand owners or trademark owners who have established brands you know, asserting, claiming that you're infringing their marks. So make sure you've got an understanding of the IP regime, the trademark regime. Get a clearance uh, search and opinion. Find out what's out there before you launch. These are all aspects of a business that you want to make sure you've got the proper advice at the front end so you don't get in those areas down the road of saying, oh, I wish I, I should have looked at this beforehand. So learn about IP, obviously protect yourself, and then you can manage your risk accordingly as you go forth. Instead of being in that that uh, regretful position and not having understood it before you promoted and launched certain technical products, services, or brands. Thank you so much. Excellent points. Lots of take-home lessons for our listeners and uh, actually anyone working with uh, IP or funding of uh, entrepreneurs in Canada. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and, and helping us all understand how to use IP more effectively. Thank you, Grant. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much, Lisa. You've listened to Canadian IP Voices and a discussion with Grant Lights, a lawyer and senior advisor at the government's IP Centre of Expertise. Grant explained the government's role in handling clauses related to intangible assets in contracts with companies performing government-funded work, potentially leading to the development of new intellectual property. It's crucial to immerse yourself in expertise to effectively manage your intellectual property often the most valuable assets you'll likely possess. Check the episode description for additional resources.